Left in Our Politics by Design series. Um, we spent the first half laying a foundation or a framework, helping to understand the big picture of what God has done, is doing, and will do, and putting ourselves in that story before we think about these things. Um, and now these last three weeks, we're focusing on um, practical facets uh, that are also essential to this. And so last week we looked at the nature of justice. This morning we'll look at the nature of love. And next week we'll look at the nature of wisdom. In other words, my hope is that as you consider uh, how you vote or how you engage or a particular policy or what needs to be done in our communities, as you consider all these things, justice, love, and wisdom should operate as filters. You should pull the e-brake for a second you should think and you should process through these things. Is this just? Is this loving? Is this wise? Um, and as we look at love this morning, I'd like you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible this morning, stuck in the pew in front of you, you should find a small black bound uh, Bible. And the index will help you find the New Testament book of 1 John. This letter that we know as 1 John was written for a reason. Its author tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So he's writing to Christians so that they would know they are truly saved. In other words, his concern is what we sometimes call as Christians assurance that you'd know with confidence that you were saved. What he ends up doing is basically vetting the authenticity of our faith. How do we know when Christ has really taken root in our hearts? How do we know when our faith is not just, not just in word, but actual reality? What does Christianity look like in practice? When the seed of faith blooms into a flower, what blooms? Okay. That's his focus. And one of the primary themes that he hits over and over revolves around this reality of love. Okay. Love is a significant litmus test of Christianity. Okay. I have a friend who likes to say, for Christianity, love is the brand. right? It's the logo. It's how you recognize it, even at a distance. But no place does he make this more clear than where we're going to look this morning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And let me teach you a little trick in reading your Bible well. You want to pay attention to repetition because repetition shows focus. It shows what's primary, what's central. Uh, when an author uses the same word over and over again, you can be confident you know that this is the topic he's concerned with. And so I want you to listen, even as we read this morning, and notice how primary this word love is in this text. Beginning here in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, as we saw in our catechism this morning, all that you require of us is reduced down to this single word, love. That we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. But as we see this morning in the text, love is also the primary description of who you are. God is love. So I pray, Lord, that you would pull back the veil on our hearts this morning and by your spirit make that love real and tangible. I pray that we would be able to see the authentic uh, authentic mark of Christianity this morning is love. And I pray, Lord, that all of our thoughts and attitudes and our actions would be bathed in love until they're transformed into love itself. Pray this in your name. Amen. Remember, John is writing these things so that we would know we have eternal life. John is writing these things so that we would have assurance that we are truly saved. John is writing these things like a certificate of authenticity to show that this is the real deal and not some sort of fake version. And here he basically says the litmus test of this work of salvation that God does in us is love. Now, notice how adamant he is here. An absence of love is an absence of God. A failure to love is a failure to understand who God is, what he's done for us, what he's doing in us, what he has planned for us. If we were to ask what the main thing is of our Christian life, the answer would be love. In the same way that if we were to ask what the main thing that God desires of us, the answer would be love. And just look at how many reasons John gives here for love in our lives. Okay, first off, notice the first one just there in verse seven, beloved, okay? Now, that vocative address there could be other things. He could say like Paul often does, brothers and sisters, and that would be appropriate because we are the family of God. He could say you guys, like most of us do. But when he says beloved here, he roots our identity in the fact that we are loved right? It's not even a word that we use to talk to one another very often, is it? But for John, it is primary identity for us. We love because we are loved. We are the loved ones, and therefore we love. That orientation is especially important. 
It's not because we're such great lovers, God loves us. We'll come back to that in a second. But God loves us. And that's a love that changes and transforms us. This is one of the amazing things about love. It is uh, productive. Love begets love. Love creates love. But notice he says, beloved, let us love one another. And then he says, for love is from God. The second reason he gives here is that love is God's greatest gift. It's something that God gives. It's something that he's done on our behalf. Love is from God. And so if we love God and his gifts, we'll love love. We'll be about it. We'll be oriented it. In fact, he pushes further. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, he uses two, two things that have happened to us. He says because we have been born of God, we love. He says because we know God, we love. Think about those in turn. The first one is that God has done a new work in us. As Pastor Matt talked about this morning, Christianity teaches that we are saved by putting our faith in Jesus, and we often call that the new birth. And there's a reason we call it a new birth. It's not because it's a second chance. It's not, you know, like I always think of Mario Kart. It's not like you drove off the track and you get picked up and placed back on the track. It's something completely new, something completely other. It's new in quality, not just new in time. It's a new birth where God imparts his empowering spirit to you and empowers you to live the life that you were made for. Okay? We are born of God, which means if we have that spiritual DNA, then it'll manifest in our life. Okay? We've all heard somebody say, you have your mother's eyes. For the Christian, it should be, you have your father's love. In fact, listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, beloved, notice he picks up the same term. He says, let us be imitators of God and love one another. Okay. Specifically there, he speaks of God and his fatherly love. Okay. You know how you don't just take on the uh, genetic traits of your parents, you also take on their mannerisms, their way of speaking as much as you would rather not, right? He's drawing from that I idea and he's saying, be an imitator of your heavenly father. So if we've been born of God, that will be expressed in our life, okay? And then he says, and it shows that we know God, Now, this is an interesting thing. This is why A.W. Tozer said, there's no more important idea in your mind than what you think of God. And he goes on to explain that uh, what he means is who you think God is will shape how you feel about life, will shape what you think about your circumstances, will shape who you are as an individual. If the God you know is vindictive and capricious, like in Jesus' parable, if he's a hard master asking for what uh, he has not provided and demanding what he has not given, it'll shape who you are. But if you know the God of the Bible, if you really know him, it will also shape who you are. And the shape it will take will be the shape of love. In fact, he says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But it's not just who God is. 
It's not just because we know who God is, it makes us lovers. It's not just because we were born of God, that makes us lovers. But look at this in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Do you see what he does here? He ties the coming of Jesus Christ, the center of our faith, the focal point of Christianity to an act of love. For us as Christians, we believe historically the most significant thing that's happened in not just the world's history, but in our personal history, happened 2,000 years ago in Israel when Jesus walked the earth, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and rose from the grave. But why did that happen? That, John says, is where God made his love manifest. How do we know that God is love? How do we know that God loves us? Both of those questions John answers in different places in this book. And this is what he says. By this we know love, that Christ died for us. And as well, he says, by this we know that we are loved, that God sent his son to die in our place. Here it says it made manifest. If you want to see who God is, if you want to know God and what he's like, Jesus is the manifestation of that. He makes it visible. He makes it tangible. He makes it real. How do we know that God loves us? Because while we were still sinners in rebellion to him, before you were born, before you were looking for him, despite all of your disinterest, despite all of the distractions, despite anything in you that is rebellious, he sent his son to save you. That is love. But if that is the centerpiece of what we believe as Christians, if that's the cornerstone of what we believe as Christians, it shapes how we live. Do you see how many reasons are just threaded through this text? How many incentives there are? How many foundations? In fact, consider this one in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word there, propitiation, is one that you basically only read in the Bible. It's a heady theological term, but here's what it basically means. It means that God's wrath has been satiated. It means that God's righteous anger against your sin has been removed. How? Not by your love, not by what you've done, not by what your actions, but God's actions as he sent his son to be that propitiation, as he solved your greatest need freely and willingly and sacrificially. And John draws the clear conclusion in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So yes, God in his nature is loving. Yes, God created us, and that in and of itself is just a manifestation of his love. But he also so loved us that he sent his son to die on our behalf. So it makes sense then, doesn't it? It makes sense then that the primary characteristic, the number one trait, the thread that's woven through the warp and woof of the Christian life is love. For all these reasons and more. And what does that mean for us in politics? What does that mean for us in the way that we live out our lives in the communities we find ourselves in? 
The answer's a simple one, isn't it? It means that we are rightly operating and living out what we believe when we do so in love. Okay. Now, what I want to do this morning is draw some implications of what that looks like at three different levels. Okay. Because really, if love fulfills the law, then like I said, love flow, flows through all of uh, our Christian lives and it impacts us in different ways. And so these are the three levels I want to talk about. They're not surprising. I want to talk about love for one another within the church in terms of politics. I want to talk about loving our neighbor. And then I want to talk about loving our enemies. Okay. I just want to look at those three levels, and instead of dealing with each one and running each one through the gamut of what love looks like, I just want to draw one aspect from this passage for each one to just kind of get us thinking about what this actually means. Now, starting with how we feel and act and behave towards one another as Christians. Within the church. Let's start there. In fact, notice that's John's primary concern. Verse 7, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Who is the one another there? Because he begins with that word beloved, we know he's not giving a commandment or an exhortation to humans in general, but to Christians. Those who have not just been loved by God, as all people are, but have received that love, been remade in that love, been born of that love, actually know that love, right? As he goes on to say. And he says, first and foremost, let us love one another. Let us love one another. Now, he goes on, he says, we should love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now notice there's two sides to that. If the goal is to love one another, he starts by saying love is from God and then he says whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, we can reverse engineer that and say effectively, you should also love those who have been born of God and know God. Right? You should love the beloved. It has become a little bit quaint, but often you will hear people say things like, I love Jesus, I'm not so fond of the church. Okay? Or, Christianity is my religion, but I don't like the organized religion. I don't like participating in these things. Now, you should understand that that sentiment is getting underneath a real reality. Okay? First off, because Christ's redemption is so broad and so universal, it is possible there are people in this room that you have nothing in common with except Jesus. You may be in completely different economic classes. You may be in completely different political camps. You may come from completely different cultures and backgrounds. You may encounter uh, Christians who do not speak your language, who do not live your ways, who do not agree with you. Okay. Think of another place in life that has so much potential for difference and diversity. And you go, well, I don't know, we're all Americans. How would you feel if you walked into a church in the Middle East? Central Africa, Australia. You can extend those differences, but not beyond the boundaries of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is incredibly broad. In fact, that's one of the reasons why our gathering on Sundays is so significant. 
because it proclaims the sufficiency of Christ in unifying humans. Here we are one body. Here we are one family. Here all of those diversities make manifest God's goodness, but do not divide us. When we look across the room, when we look across the aisle, when we talk to one another, we talk to God's beloved. Now, there's another thing that people are usually expressing. It's not just that diversity. It's not just, I don't find people like me at church. It's also, I find people who are way too much like me, a.k.a. a sinner. Right Now, we may not think in that context. We generally use words like hypocrites and stuff. And again... This is a normal and natural facet of what it means to look at the church. The great Christian father Augustine said, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. That tension is something we all understand. Okay? We don't come to church expecting people who have been perfected. We come to church like patients to a hospital. So we shouldn't be surprised that the other people around us are sick okay, and have come to get healing. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, bear with one another in love. You know what a literal translation of that word to bear is? Put up with one another. <laughs> Paul gets it. He understands. He knows what it's like to get frustrated with young John Mark who comes along on the mission trip and then bails halfway through. He knows what it's like to pull Peter aside and say, your behavior does not reflect the gospel. You're showing partiality to Gentiles by honoring Jews more than them. These are real things. But to allow them to divide us is to deny the reality of what God's love has done, is doing, and will do finally. The hippies in California in the late 60s and early 70s had a title for the church that became kind of popular with them. It was this, God's Forever Family. This is who we are. This is who we will be with. This is how we'll spend eternity as brothers and sisters, as the beloved. Now obviously, if this is the case, if one of the things that makes manifest the reality of God who is love, the reality of Christ who died and rose again, if love is a manifestation of that, then the church should be a family of love. In fact, listen to these words from Jesus. He says in the Gospel of John, by this the world will know that you're my disciples. What is the one primary evidence that Christianity is true, that we follow Jesus, that he's really alive today? By this they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. I've always been fascinated by that sentence. By this they will know you're my disciples, by your love for the world. Okay, sure. He says, no, the, the evidence, the manifestation will be how we live out that love for one another. I think there's a couple of ways you could think of this. Okay. First off, if you can't do it here, how will you do it out there? If you can't learn to love with those who are also equipped to love you in return, 
If you can't learn to love with those who understand sin and forgiveness and that Jesus paid it all. If you can't learn to love with those whose primary and focal point of worship is the exact same as yours. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. How will you learn it outside? In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that this is the proving grounds. It's the practice round for loving anywhere else. And we should never stop here. We should never say the only goal of life is just to love one another and to hell with the world. But I promise you this, you'll never get there unless you start here. That's the way it works. So what does this mean for us politically? Clearly, it shapes the way we engage with one another in political disagreement. Clearly, it strikes down this self-righteousness that says, my way of thinking about the right way of doing life as a community, economically, politically. We cannot say that is the litmus test for Christians. Let me just give you an obvious truth in American politics. There are Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats. Now, I would prefer we say there are Christians who vote for Democrats and Christians who vote for Republicans, but it doesn't really matter. People are going to self-identify within the body of Christ with one party or the other. People are going to disagree on the qualities and the positives of capitalism or other economic systems. These are real things. And you might say, yeah, but there's a difference between differences of opinion and just being plain wrong. Right? There's a difference between places where we can disagree because there's not a right answer and places where there clearly are. Does it matter? Will the thing that holds them up in the court of God be that they voted rightly? That they had all the right answers? Do you really believe that your political record is absolutely perfect? That there's no error in it at all? We believe that we are sinners saved by grace. And so it means that we should be able to model for an incredibly divided country an ability to disagree and not just leaving other people's dignity intact, but sustaining true and life-giving relationship despite those differences. It should shape the way we engage and talk about these things, shouldn't it? It should shape our ability to sit down and have a full conversation and not just reduce it down to banner-waving and straw men and criticizing people for things we think they believe should slow us down and make us listen should do all of these things now it's ironic to me and it's a great loss that I think this is the one place where we feel like we can't talk about political issues like I think if I handed you guys pins on the way in to the front door for your political allegiance or who you voted for in the last election, I think everybody would get tremendously nervous. It shouldn't be that way. Let me read it to you again. Beloved, let us love one another, for we are all Republicans. It doesn't say that, does it? Beloved, let us love one another because we all agree. 
Beloved, let us love one another because we're all currently doing the right thing and have the right views. No, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. In fact, this is a secret sauce that flows through all of your engagement. The reason we love is related to who God is and not who we're trying to love. The reason we love is because of how God loves us and not who we're trying to love. The reason we love is because God loves them and not because of how we feel about them. Okay. Some of us make the mistake in our lives of trying to go through the filter of our own flesh and personal opinions to love our neighbors, and it doesn't work. You have to run it through Jesus. You have to go back to the center, you have to connect to the hub, and then you can flow out. Okay. And one of the reasons you need to remember that is because Paul says this, he says, the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts. In other words, there is enough love for you to love the people in your life, if you would ask. It's there, it overflows, it stems from what God is doing in you. He is pouring his love into you and there's plenty to go around. Okay. In fact, if we believe that Christ is Savior, if we believe that we need a savior, and not just needed past tense, but need present tense and will need future, then asking for help to love one another well should be the status quo, should be the natural intention. It's the incredible truth of the gospel that it cultivates both a tremendous confidence. We can, as Paul says, walk boldly into the throne room of grace. In our prayers, we can walk up to God as if he were our father because he is but it also creates a tremendous humility. We don't come with our merit badges clinging to our chest or our record for our devotional work during this week. We come solely and completely on what Christ has done and so that cultivates humility, the humility that needs help and asks for it. So love one another, this is where it begins, but also love your neighbor. Now we've talked about love your neighbor from beginning to the end of this series. We've talked about the fact that God has created all human beings in his image and that gives them dignity and worth. It makes them worth loving, worth caring for, worth helping, worth protecting. No matter how they live, no matter what they think, no matter where they are, no matter the color of their skin, it's that broad. But here specifically, I want to talk about love your neighbor in the context of what it says in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And what does that have to do with loving our neighbors? I want to draw your attention to that word made manifest first. Okay. Now, if you have a translation that says, in this the love of God appeared, that's not a bad translation, but it's easy to misunderstand it because something can appear in a vision off in the distance. Something can appear and it's just something you see. Made manifest means shows up in a way that is fully enfleshed. Shows up in a way that shows you the whole character. It's not just a blip on the radar. It's an encounter, okay? Manifest is a very strong word here and that's how God's love was made manifest. In fact, listen to how John talks about God's love in the beginning of the gospel here. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify it to it and proclaim to you eternal life, with, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What is it that they saw and heard and looked upon and even touched? It is Jesus in the flesh. God become man. How did John, who calls himself in his gospel the disciple who Jesus loved, how did he know that God loved him? How did he know that Jesus loved him? Because Jesus embraced him. Because he saw the look on Jesus' face as Jesus listened to his concerns. Because Jesus walked with him and lived with him and counseled him and guided him. What this means is the way that God makes his love manifest and the way that God makes his love manifest for our neighbor is in person, in flesh, incarnate. Okay. In fact, the second word I want to draw your attention to in, in 1 John chapter 4 draws that out. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent Jesus was sent. And why am I bringing that up? Because John's gospel tells us that one of the parting words that Jesus gave to his disciples was, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. Now, that also there, that so also is not just God sent me, I sent you. It's God sent me and I'm sending you in the way that God sent me. Okay. In other words, the primary shape of Christian ministry is incarnational, embodied. Okay. And this means two things. One, it means the best way to love our neighbors is to do life with them. Okay. Now this is something that's especially significant for us as Americans because primarily our political engagement involves what we do in the voters booth. In fact, maybe you've heard pastors preach on voting and they suggest that a failure to vote and to vote properly is to be irresponsible as a Christian, to not be faithful. But we have a much bigger and much different problem as Americans. It's to assume that because we voted, we have been faithful. It's to limit our love of neighbors to the opinions we express of them as we punch the ballot. few, uh, almost two years ago now, the youth jail here on Capitol Hill uh, was set up for a huge remodel. And there was a church in the area that set out a petition, and they wanted to get all of the churches to sign on a position, petition resisting and calling the city not to rebuild that jail. Now, the Christians' concerns were proper. Over-incarceration, um, uh, these types of things. But when you looked at the facts, the jail that they've built now has less beds in it than the one before. And it has a lot more rooms for assistance for those who are in jail so that their life doesn't just lead back to jail on the way going out. In other words, even if you take the ideal of these parties, it was a move in the right direction. But because most politics today is idealist in nature, they wanted to take a stand against the prison industrial complex as a whole. 
and they chose this place to do it. Now, I'm just telling you that for background, but when I wrote one of these other pastors and explained why I wouldn't be signing the petition, I said, honestly, I don't know much about our neighbors who are incarcerated over there. I don't know them personally, and I, if I was going to get involved in their life and make decisions that directly impact them, I'd rather know them well enough to do it with understanding. If I can criticize Seattle politics for a minute. We have a very interesting breed of progressivism here because it's progressivism from the top. It's the wealthy and well-educated and sophisticated who care about these issues, but often that comes with a complete disconnect. They come up with a, you know, um, big brother knows best mentality, but they don't actually know what life is like on the ground. They don't actually take input from those who they're trying to serve. Now that may or may not be right for a political engagement, but it's not right for Christians. How was it that Christianity spread and changed lives? It spread as Christians moved out of their places and into other places and took with them a message and a ministry of love. Okay. In other words, and this is coming from someone who hates relocation, okay? I wish you all would just stay where you are for the rest of your lives in close quarters to me so we could just do out life together. That's the way I'm wired. But if there is one clearly tangible reason as a Christian to move, it's to throw yourself in the midst of those who are hurting to lend a helping hand. Not to solve the problem from a distance, but to incarnate God's love. Okay. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that your political thinking shouldn't begin all the way out here in the big and in the national or in the international. It should begin in the closest quarters of where you live. And I'll tell you honestly, I would love to see people in our church ministering to our incarcerated neighbors in the youth jail that is in our neighborhood. And if that leads to protests or changes of votes or the starting of nonprofits, amen. But then we can be confident that it does so in love. Okay, and so, yes, love our neighbors and love them politically. And yes, be concerned about things that impact people far from you. But keep in mind that the way that God's love was made manifest was when God moved into the neighborhood and did life. That should be our orientation as well. In fact, it also solves another problem of American political engagement, which is that governmental legislation cannot solve all problems. But you'd be amazed how many problems can be solved by people who lovingly enter into the problem and come up with non-legislative solutions. Okay. Maybe our government can't figure out how to do public education. Does that mean it's an unsolvable problem? Far from it. But if some of you families who had kids together adopted a public school and said, we're going to send our students here and make a difference, by this, the love of God is made manifest. But I think we'd be amiss if we stopped there and didn't talk about loving our enemies. And one of the reasons I think it's important to do so 
is because both this is the hardest, this is the sticky wicket of the whole issue, and because this is the most uniquely Christian. Jesus said, you do good to your family members, so does everybody. Jesus said, you treat nicely those who treat you nicely. What does it matter? So does everybody. In other words, he said, the unique aspect, the unique facet of Christian love is its ability to love those who hate you, who mistreat you, who oppose you. Okay. In fact, here you go, but John doesn't talk about that. But Jesus does. Listen to his words here in Matthew chapter 5. Tell me if this sounds similar to the words in 1 John. You have heard that it was said, 1 John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Do you see that? Same connection John gives. Why do we love our enemies? Because God loves our enemies, and we are his children. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Love your enemies. Now, I think back in 1 John, we also find a helpful and beneficial aspect of this, and it's in the last few verses here, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. One of the things that keeps us from loving our enemies is this pervasive and consistent pride that makes a difference between us and them. We don't love them because they are unlovable, because they are wicked or evil or because of these things. And yet we need to remember that the reason God loves us doesn't stem from our attractiveness, our lovability, our good nature, and our good works. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love the old theologians would say, was disinterested. Now, when you hear that in modern English, it makes it sound like God isn't even looking while he's doing these things. It's just, yeah, yeah, I see. That's not what the word means. Disinterested means not for his own sake, not on his own behalf. It means he loved us for our sake. Okay. It means that he had our concern primary and foremost, and that motivated his love. In other words, we're called to love our enemies because we know what it's like to be the enemies of God. And as his enemies, we experienced his love. Now, there's some things that love our enemies does not mean. It doesn't mean that we have to enjoy them. To some degree, it doesn't even mean that we have to like them spend time with them, want to be around them. It doesn't mean that we have to justify the evil and the wickedness that they do or explain away the opposition and oppression they may show us. But loving our enemies means 
that we seek not just to defeat them, but to convert them, to transform them into our friends. It means that we don't just try to avoid them or think of self-preservation, but we recognize that they are also harming and hindering themselves. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the segregation issues he was facing were not a black and white issue, they were a justice issue, and he knew that freeing the oppressors was real freedom that was necessary and valuable. And he didn't just seek for his black brothers and sisters to get out from under the thumb, he sought what he called the beloved community. He said that modern technology had made the whole world a neighborhood, but it had yet to make it a brotherhood. He believed And you can read this in his sermon, Love Your Enemies. He believed that one of the things that marks the ability of love is its ability to transform. And so what does this mean? It means that when we encounter opposition politically as Christians, we talk with those as if they may someday be our siblings. We talk as those, again, like we saw with Love Your Neighbor, that don't self-justify in a way that makes such a distinction that now they are merely demonic. We don't just demonize the other size. We believe that if God can redeem us, they can redeem them. It means that the way we handle even the worst of treatment, maybe it's not opposition, maybe it's outright persecution. We handle it in a way where we know that our suffering done from a place of love can actually be part of the change. That it can cultivate something within even our enemies that would transform them. How am I so confident of that? Because that is the gospel message. Christ suffered on our behalf and in a significant way, representatively at our hand. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he's modeling the same love your enemies that he calls us to. But in that suffering, he's not just enduring the hatred of another person. He's absorbing it. He's paying for it. He's transforming it. This is why not retaliating is so significant as Christians. Because again, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate just leads to more hate. Violence leads to violence. Darkness can't defeat darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred can't defeat hatred. Only love can do that. And we believe that by the power of God, suffering for the right, suffering from a place of love can actually be redemptive. Now, I want to just state the obvious here. If love flows through the Christian life and transforms how we treat one another, our neighbors, and even our enemies, then obviously and clearly there is no room for hate in the expression of Christian politics. Uh, Jason Davison Hunter He says that American politics suffers from what Nietzsche called resentiment, 
which is not just resentment. Okay, resentment is when you feel bad about the way you've been treated. Resentment is when you become aggressively opposed to those who have mistreated you. And if you look at every political angle and venue, everyone now identifies as the victim who is being taken advantage of by the other side, and with that comes hatred. It almost seems like the best way to do this is just to say you cannot be a Christian and be a politician on Facebook, because that is the primary place where we see this go down. Now, Facebook is not the problem. Hearts, real human hearts are the problem, provided the opportunity to, at a distance and anonymously, say what's really going on in their hearts. But there's no room for us as Christians. There's no political agenda so significant, there's no issue so important to justify hatred. Because hatred is not of God. Because hatred is not the hand that God has dealt you. Because hatred is not the manifestation of God and who he is as represented in the cross. Because you are not the behated, but the beloved. Now, I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to publicly or collectively confess what have become real realities within the church. And where you need to enter into those things, enter into them with me. And where you just know these things coexist in the church, enter in on their behalf. If we are the church, then we have a problem. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for settling for hatred. Forgive us for allowing these distinctions and differences to divide even your body. Forgive us, Lord, for the way that we talk to a world that could know your love, a world that you love and are seeking. Forgive us, Lord, for making issues so significant that we make our politics greater than the kingdom. Forgive us for the places where we think that we are more righteous than you, or more kind than you, or more generous than you. I pray, Lord, that you would do a new thing in the American church, that you would strip us of the idols of politics and the hatred of opposition, and that you would give us an overwhelming and abundant overflowing source of love. We need your help, not to save our country, but to be your church. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us this morning, laying your finger on the places where we've let hatred get a foothold, or indifference be our manifest expression of our relationship with our neighbors. I pray that your spirit would remind us of the forgiveness available in Jesus Christ, that we would be able to humbly confess our sins but do so in confidence, knowing that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
I pray that your spirit would work in us a new reality of love, Lord. Empower us to love one another and our neighbor and even our enemies well. And I pray, Lord, that as we do so, it would affirm and authenticate the reality of who you are and what you've done in us, that we would have assurance, that we would grow more in the church to be what we are, the very family of God, that we would make manifest to a world that is drowning the salvation available in Jesus Christ through your love. And that we would see this love even transform our enemies into family. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.